Hi, you're listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist Church Conway. These resources are not designed to take the place of a local church, but we hope they will encourage you on your journey with Christ. For more information about how you can connect with the Second Family, visit mysecond.family. Thanks for listening. If you have your Bible, turn to Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes. If you do not know where Ecclesiastes is in the Bible, uh, then it is kind of towards the left, middle, then to the left. If you go to the table of contents, feel free to look that up there. It's spelled on the board in front of you. Ecclesiastes, no shame in using the table of contents. Have you flown lately? Anybody gone on an airplane trip here lately? Yeah, I mean, we, we did this last week, a couple of them, four, in fact, uh, as part of vacation. And one of the things I don't understand as I was observing, I was sort of, I was thinking about Ecclesiastes, so I was looking around observing the futility of man. And as I was doing this and looking around, what I, th- what I don't understand is why everyone seems to be in such a rush during air travel. I mean, I understand you gotta, you gotta get your connecting flight. That makes sense for one or two people to be running through the terminal, but everybody doesn't need to run. And everybody just seems to be just in such a hurry. We're all going to get there the same way, about the same time. There's nothing really you can do to speed this thing up. And so why is it that people are in such a hurry? I mean, when they go to, like, they're they're at baggage claim, it seems like they're going to tackle something to make sure that that bag doesn't go around that conveyor belt one more time, you know? You, You see this most clearly in, I think, when the plane lands. Plane lands, and instantly you hear all this click, 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 and everybody stands up. Like, they're looking around like, we're here. Why, why am I not getting off of this yet? Hurry up. Let's go. Let's go. You, you still got a taxi. You still got to move up to the front there. But people stand up. They start standing up. And, man, I'm, I'm, I'm a rules follower so long as the rule makes sense. And uh, that, that's how I justify everything. And so um, sitting down in your seat until the captain says it's time to stand up is a rule that makes sense to me, you know. And, but there's these people. They'll, they'll stand, they click, and then they stand up, and they're standing there in and, and this space, and there are, a lot of them are kneeling down like this, you know, and I'm like, is that, are you more comfortable now? Or do you feel better? Do you feel, you feel like you're getting something done? Standing up there like that, and then they think to themselves, you know, this is already crowded. I'm standing here awkwardly. You know what? Now would be a good time to get my bag out of the overhead compartment. So they start popping that thing and wrestling it out, and other people are standing here. There's this guy. He's a couple seats in front of me, and he did that. As soon as we landed, I mean, we are barely touching down. He's like, click, stands up, you know, he's looking around. Then people with legitimate claims to be standing up start to stand up in front. He gets pushed back, pushed back, pushed back. Pretty soon, his rear is about face level to me right here, and I really appreciate that. I'm glad that that he was going to get off the plane no faster than he was if he stayed in his seat. There was a lady one time, she was behind us about three rows, and, and she was of a certain age in which rules do not apply to her. And so the plane landed, and she took the seatbelt off, and she ran up a couple rows. She, in fact, she skipped like six rows, right? She's up there six rows ahead of us, and we're like, okay, great, awesome. Turns out she's on the next flight with us, and so she rushed. She got off the plane and a minute earlier to sit with us in the next gate, you know, and wait for this. There's no reason to do this. It's, it's pointless, right? I mean, I looked at this four flights, and every time I'm like, this is pointless. I do not know why y'all are doing this. This is pointless. But there's a bunch of pointless things in our lives, right? A ton of po- If you look around, you can find pointless things all the time. Like, like getting in a fight on Facebook. That's pointless, right? Have you ever won one of those? 
Did you ever convert somebody else's to opinion on uh, the best chicken in Conway by getting in a fight on, on Facebook? No, probably not. There's all sorts of things like that. Um, sometimes I feel like putting things in the bulletin or the website is pointless around here. People will still act like they have never, ever heard of this thing that we put on the, the website or the bulletin. I promise you, in a couple of weeks, somebody's going to call mad because they have never once heard about the Greenbrier campus opening up. And they, they drove by, saw a sign, and they are upset that we did not let them know about that. Dogs you can carry. Um, that's a pointless thing. And listen, I'm glad that you have your dog. I, I like that you, and they seem fun and friendly and all that kind of stuff. I just think it's a different species. That's all I'm saying. It's, it's a different thing. You have dogs in order of like uh, uselessness or usefulness. You have dogs, you have every barnyard animal, right? And then you have uh, dogs you can carry, and then you have guinea pigs and then cats. And so you have everything in this order, right? And so dogs that you can carry, they may seem pointless to other people. Mosquito repellent. Y'all ever put that stuff? That doesn't work. I don't know. What, especially if you light it on fire, it's not going to work. Yeah, mosquito. Potpourri in the restroom. That's pointless. I don't know why people have that. The fabric that you put down in your flower bed to, to stop weeds from coming up. I have weeds and I have fabric down there. So I don't understand that stuff. Uh, your spouse's text message notifications. That's pointless. They're not responding. Um, they'll act like they didn't get it. Uh, paying for a larger drink in a restaurant that has free refills. You see people do that? I think I'll upsize this one. There's free refills right there. You get the small and get as much as you want, you know? But people do that. One that I saw this morning was this, ironing your shirts. It just seems pointless. I got to keep walking around. I starched this last night. I starched and ironed this, but, you know, just within five minutes of putting it on, it's all wrinkled up. These are the things that seem pointless. If you look around in your life, you can come up with a list of a million things, right, that seem pointless. Everywhere you look, there are things that are pointless. And it can, get, uh, it can get discouraging. It can get frustrating. You start to add all of these things up, and you wonder to yourself, what if all of the little things in life, what if it's not just all of the little things in life that are pointless? What if, what if all of life is pointless? What if, like, none of it matters? start looking around at, at broken hearts and tragedies and relationships, careers, education, saving your money or not saving your money. You look around and you can probably, on your worst day, in your saddest moment, you can come up with reasons why everything is pointless. And in fact, this is the, the main question that Ecclesiastes is going to ask. This book is going to put that question right out there to the front of everybody's thoughts and everybody's minds. It's going to ask this, what if all of life is pointless. What then? What should we do? What do we do now? What's going to happen later? That's the question that we're going to ask. We're going to start today. We're going to look at this for four weeks. So I hope that you'll stay with us for that. But let's pray together. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for not only the sweeter words that encourage us onward with a, with a hug and a, and a gentle um, word of strength, but also these stronger words that push us away from the danger that prick us, that hurt us, that make us feel out of touch with things. God, I pray that we would leave here today with, uh, with our minds free of these, these pointless things that we pursue that, that end up not having any value. So God, I, would leave, I pray that we leave here today fearing you and obeying your commands, that ultimately we would see the value that is in you and not in these other things. It's in Jesus' name that we pray together. Amen.
So as you know, we, uh, we spent the last week in Florida, and so a lot of this study and a lot of this thinking and pondering happened to me while I was down near the beach, and so I hope that you don't mind. Uh, a lot of my illustrations are going to come from the beach, all right? And that's just, I hope you don't mind that today. I know we're far from the beach, but I hope you don't mind that. Verse 12 is where we're going to start. It says, I, the teacher, have been king over Israel in Jerusalem. I, the teacher. Now, in verse 1, it says the same thing. It talks about the words of the teacher. In chapter 12, verse 12, it talks about the teacher and kind of sums up the idea of the teacher. It's important for us, as we look at any book, to kind of ask ourselves the question, who wrote this? Who's speaking? What value do they add to my life? And, and so this teacher idea is really going to, before we even get to who is speaking, we're going to kind of see that there is an editor to Ecclesiastes. Now, I don't mean editor like they took things out that God wanted in there. I mean like there is an intro, a preface, and then there's a conclusion at the end. Look at verse 1 and 2. It says the words of the teacher, right? And so obviously the teacher is not the one's writing. In fact, verse 1 down through verse 11 could very well be this preface, this statement that say this is what the teacher is about to get into. And then if you go to verse or chapter 12, they're ending there. It's a summary statement to make sure that you don't walk away with the wrong impression of what this whole book means. The teacher, these are the words of but let's look specifically at the teacher there in verse 12. I, the teacher. So it's just from a guy or a person saying, these, what is about to happen is what the teacher says to the teacher speaking. Who is the teacher? Now we're going to learn two Hebrew words today. And the first one is koheleth. Koheleth. This word here, I, the teacher, in Hebrew is koheleth. How many of you, in your English translations, the ones that you have there in your hands, on your phone, on your tablet, whatever, how many of you have the words of the preacher? Preacher. Look, there's a lot of those. And how many of you have teacher? There's a lot of those as well. Yeah. It's, it's two of the most common ways to translate the word teacher or koheleth. Koheleth is just a person who stands up in front of a group of people and begins to speak or, or in front of somebody and begins to teach a lesson. So this can be a teacher like in school. This can be a preacher like in church. This can be just a person, a, a town crier that stands up in the middle and gathers a, a crowd together. I heard one commentator say it, that it's, when you're reading Ecclesiastes, it's a lot like you're sitting there with your grandfather or your great-grandfather. You're sitting on the, on the front porch, you're swinging on a porch swing, and then all of a sudden they go into this rant about life and the meaningless of life and the purposes of life. And, and, and it's just kind of like Grandpa telling you some of the things that have happened in his life. That would be a good way to sort of understand what's going to go on in Ecclesiastes as the Koheleth begins to teach. This Koheleth figure, most people attribute it to Solomon. That Solomon is the Koheleth that speaks in this uh, book of Ecclesiastes, and for good reason. Like the first one is just that it's a wisdom book with Job and, and Proverbs. This book really deals with wisdom literature, meaning that it's going to look at uh, or observe nature and, and life as it is and sort of get to the basics of how God wants us to live in this broken world. That's wisdom literature. It gives us discernment and it gives us a way forward. So since it's a wisdom book and Solomon wrote Proverbs and Solomon was wise, then it makes good sense that Solomon was the author of Ecclesiastes. Also, it says that he was the king over Israel in Jerusalem. Well, one of the kings over Israel in Jerusalem is Solomon. 
One of the kings who this is not, definitely, is Saul. Saul did not reign over Israel in Jerusalem. David, who followed Saul, moved the capital to Jerusalem. Solomon, being David's son, is uh, the next sort of point there in verse 1. He says that he is the son of David, which is helpful, but David had lots of sons, and generally speaking, any king over Israel after David was called the son of David. So that's not very conclusive. The whole king of Israel or king in Jerusalem or the son of David isn't very conclusive. Also, one of the things that causes people to question whether or not Solomon is the author of Ecclesiastes is that Solomon never claims it. Nowhere in the book of Ecclesiastes does it say the author is Solomon. Proverbs begins with, and these are the Proverbs of Solomon, the king of Israel, the son of David. Song of Songs begins with the Song of Songs, the Song of Solomon. And so both of those books, written by Solomon, claim Solomon to be their author. And so then the question would bring up, if Solomon wrote the book of Ecclesiastes, then why didn't Solomon uh, claim it? And my answer for that is, I have no idea. I don't know why he didn't claim it, but I still personally fall on the idea that Solomon is the author of the book. In chapter 12, as it summarizes the words of Kohelet, he says that he arranged many proverbs and sought to find words, or sought to find delightful sayings and write words of truth accurately. That sounds like Solomon to me. So why is this significant and why does it matter? It matters to me for this reason. Now listen, you can say that there are uh, historical and grammatical reasons why Solomon might not be the author of this, and that's fine. But the reason that I think that it is helpful to understand that Solomon is probably the author of this book is because Solomon lived his life to the excess. Solomon lived his life with abandon. It doesn't matter what the circumstance or what the exercise or what the pleasure, Solomon dove in head first. When it comes to money, Solomon had more than anybody, right? When it comes to women, Solomon had more than anyone. When it comes to idols and gardens and homes and, and vacation properties and horses, Solomon had the best of the best. He had the cars and he had the lifestyle. This is Solomon's lifestyle. He lived this way, and not just from this book, but also from other historical data. And even the Bible itself shows us that when it came to life, Solomon lived in the excess. There was no limit to the depth at which Solomon experienced every possible human experience. And so, if this book is the older Solomon uh, sort of reminiscing about the life that he lived, there is great value in that. Because he knows. He's not somebody who's speaking about something who did not live that Solomon knows. He lived these things to the fullest. And so, think of Ecclesiastes as you are sitting there with your grandfather, maybe your great-grandfather, who happens to be Solomon, the most lavish king of all of the nation. You're having a cup of Turkish coffee. I don't know why, but it just makes sense that Solomon would have Turkish coffee. You're sitting there with a cup of Turkish coffee on the terrace, overlooking one of his many gardens, and all of a sudden, Grandpa goes into a rant. And he says, I applied my mind to examine and explore through wisdom all that is done under heaven. He pretty much says, look, I looked at everything, everything in life. You know, he's drinking his cup. I looked at everything, everything in life. And God has given people this miserable task to keep them occupied. 
I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile. A pursuit of the wind. What is crooked cannot be straightened. What is lacking cannot be counted. You know, can you imagine that? You're just sitting there quietly, having a cup of coffee. Grandpa starts yelling about everything's pointless. And you're like, okay, Grandpa, drink your coffee. I have no idea what you just said, you know, that sort of thing. That's sort of the feeling. But here's what I want you to do. I want you not to tune out Grandpa, because Grandpa's not crazy. Grandpa is right. Grandpa's exactly right. And so as we listen to these words, here's what he's doing, and here's what he is going to do as we go further into the text. What he does is he attacks nearly every level of life, every experience, every uh, pursuit and goal in life, and he attacks it head on. Sort of like when, uh, when waves crash against the beach. It comes on very strong and heavy. There's a loud noise, and then it resides just a little bit. Ecclesiastes does not take very long to read, and so I want to challenge you over the next four weeks to read Ecclesiastes as many times as you possibly can. But make sure that you read all the way to the ending. This is not a book that you want to just read halfway through because you're going to walk away and go, man, everything, everything stinks. Everything, I don't care. You know, that's so you need to read the ending of the book. He will crash heavy into all sorts of topics, and then he resides just a little bit, and then he hits it again, and then he resides just a little bit, like the waves against the sea. He says in verse 13, I applied my mind to examine and explore. If you can mark your Bible, Mark those two words, examine and explore. Your Bible may not say examine and explore. It might say search and seek, to seek out or to search. Either way, mark up those two words. They're important for us to understand what it is that Solomon said that he did. Warren Worsby says to seek means to get to the root of it. That would be exploring or examining. To search means to explore it from all sides. What he did was he really searched out the topic, and then he really experienced it. When you go to the beach, when our family goes to the beach, one of the things that we do is we look for shells, right? And just by standing on the beach and watching other families, it looks like that's what a lot of people do. They look for shells. This time, when we went to the beach, I borrowed a, a full-face snorkeling mask, um, Snorkeling, yeah, snorkeling mask. And uh, had that thing on, it has this little snorkel sticking out here. It kind of looks like an alien, but it's really kind of cool. And so I would swim around and I would look down at the, the bottom of the, the sand there. And if there was something that caught my eye, like a shell, uh, a piece of a shell, it's kind of covered by the sand, I'd take my net and I'd scoop it up and I'd stand up and kind of shake that out and see what it is that I got. Sometimes I would get a full shell. Sometimes it would just be a portion of a shell, and that was sort of worthless. But sometimes even the portion of the shell had uh, beautiful colors on it or some sort of um, intricate, beautiful, natural design to it that made it worth at least showing the rest of my family, you know, before we throw it back into the water there. That's seeking out. That's exploring. Before I had one of these masks, every time in the past when I would go to the beach, I would just kind of walk around until my foot stepped on something, and then I'd pick it up with my toe and then look at it and then throw it back, you know, and then keep walking around. That's a good way to find all sorts of things, right, you know, uh, and pick them up with your foot. The idea is that I'm seeking out. I spent a lot of time going and looking for the thing, and then when I found it, I grabbed it and tried to experience it from every angle, in the light, in the water, in different colors. That's what Solomon, that's what grandpa does here. When it comes to work, he, he found hard labor and, and mental labor. He found these things that would, that would accomplish a great deal very quickly and these things that were never done. 
And he experienced all of them to the fullest. In chapter 2, he looks at wisdom, pleasure, possessions, work, and even foolishness, which I find very fascinating that he would look at foolishness and not just wisdom. But let's focus on wisdom. Just for today, I want to focus on uh, wisdom because what it'll show us is the way that he approaches everything. Like I said, in chapter 2, he's going to approach a bunch of different things, but then he's going to review them and revisit them over and over and over throughout chapters 3 through 11. When it comes to wisdom, I want to focus, if you have your Bible, look at verse 16 through 18. I'm not going to put it on the screen, so you have to look down on your text. It says, I said to myself, see, I have amassed wisdom far beyond all those who are over Jerusalem before me. Remember, he's, this is Grandpa. He's talking to you. You listen to him. He says, I, 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 I got more wisdom than everybody who ever ruled over Jerusalem before me, and my mind has thoroughly grasped wisdom and knowledge. I'm extremely smart, is what he says. I applied my mind to know wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly. I learned that it is to the pursuit of the wind. For with much wisdom is much sorrow, and knowledge increases, grief increases. He says, I learned all sorts of things. One of the funny things, a side note here, is when he says, I got more wisdom than anyone else before me who ruled over Jerusalem. That's funny because, like I said just a minute ago, Saul did not rule in Jerusalem. David was the next king who was Solomon's dad. He ruled in Jerusalem, and then Solomon ruled in Jerusalem. So when he says, look, I am the wisest person who has ever lived in Jerusalem, what he was saying was more than my dad. I am way smarter than my dad, right? He was great. He was a great king. He was a great warrior, but I'm way smarter than him. And even though that may not be exactly what he was saying, what we do know for sure is that Solomon was an extremely wise king. You remember that when he first began his reign, God granted him a request, and that request was for a discerning heart in which God called wisdom. So God gives Solomon this wisdom, but it's not just wisdom, it's also knowledge, details. He says, I read all the books. I went and found out all of the wise. I figured out where all of the stuff comes from and how it's put together and how it's made and all of the skills and all of these abilities. I did all of this. I knew more knowledge, details, facts than anybody else, but not just that. I knew how to synthesize it and put it together and apply it to my life. Wisdom, discernment. I did all of these things together and, and it wasn't just wisdom and knowledge, but also madness and folly. Like I said, this is interesting to me because many of us who are Christians or, or, or believers or God-fearers or just rational people, we hardly ever look over at the fool and, and decide, let's try that out for a while, right? We try to live straight-laced and narrow. We try to live our best life. And Solomon says, I tried that. I tried being wise and figuring out the consequences of my actions and not doing things that would hurt other people or hurt myself. And then he looks over at other people who have no concept of that, who seem to just be living willy-nilly and not caring about their consequences and stuff. And he says, let's try that for a while, you know? And so he did. He fully did that. Just lived however he wanted to live apart from wisdom and knowledge, madness and folly, all of this together is the way that he lived his life. And he said in that bucket, in that area of life, knowledge and experience, it's, it's pointless. There's no real point to it. The reason he gives is because the more you know, the more you hurt. When you find out things, when you see what's behind the curtain, when you find out how the sausage is made, when you figure out all of this stuff, then you hurt. 
It doesn't feel good anymore. The more I knew, the more I hurt. So it's all pointless. Why would I ever do that? He did this in respect to work and all of the different aspects. He did this in respect to wisdom. It got me thinking, and it made me ask this question. The book of Ecclesiastes is ancient. It's old. And it's amazing because every aspect of it is applicable to our lives. Every single aspect of it is applicable to the life we live now in this day and in this age. But I wondered, if it was written today, what would Solomon write? If it was said today, if it was spoken today on the terrace over the garden with coffee, grandfather to grandson and granddaughter, what would he say and what would he mention? I came up with three things that I think that he would mention. The first one I think that he would mention is social media. I think, and I know some people think that, well, you just harp on social media too much. And I harp on social media too much because it is something, it's like fire. It's not the media itself. It's not the medium itself. It's the way in which we play with it with no consideration how it's affecting our souls and our relationships and our minds and the way that we relate to other people. We have to be very careful with social media. I truly believe there's nothing wrong with it, but there's a lot wrong with just playing with it without any kind of consideration. We use social media to construct this image of ourselves and put it out there, hoping for meaning, hoping for purpose. I take a picture in the right way. I post pictures of what I'm doing in the right way. Not everything I'm doing, only these things that I'm doing, only these things that I'm experiencing. I say these things about myself and I push all of that out there with these little sound bites, hoping that that would give me some sort of platform, some sort of clout, some sort of expertise in a way that other people will give me value and meaning. And we can act like we put it in the guise of marketing or building a platform for the good of others, but with constant, endless face, um, our face and pictures and in videos, what we're really asking is for somebody desperately to give us meaning, to give us purpose. That's one of the things that I think a loving grandfather would tell their grandchild. Look, the hearts and the likes and the thumbs up, they're cool, they're fun, but they don't really add anything to your life. In fact, all you do is scream how much you lack those things in your life when you constantly put those things up. I've moved from social media, and I think further about other things. One of them, I think, is this religion of comfort. This religion of comfort. We literally worship comfort in every aspect of our lives. We want everything built around what makes us comfortable. What is our preference? This is why we get so mad when our preference isn't met by the church or by the church leaders or by our other small group members, that everything about the music and the, and the service order and, and my seats and my schedule and all of the different things that we want to build around us are all built on our comfort and our preference. This is the way that I like it. And listen to me, and I've said this a million times, there's nothing wrong with having a preference. In fact, I think you should have a preference. That's a good thing. That's a human thing. That's a thinking person's thing to have a preference. But it turns into religion when I get disappointed and mad when my preference isn't the only preference that is followed. I know that we worship comfort because so often Christians are marked more by fighting over preference than we are living our lives in a discomfortable way that shares the gospel with other people. We never go on mission trips because that might mess up my vacation schedule. 
I don't serve in every, I don't serve regularly because that might mess up my, my schedule. This, this might not, I, I don't want to put myself out there. Or that's too hard. I can't go out there and do that. That might, I mean, I, I just, I'm too old for this or I'm too busy for this. Why? Because we worship comfort. We give to the church. Of course we give to the church. That's what good Christians are supposed to do. You're supposed to give financially to church, but just not sacrificially. That would be crazy. I'm not going to do that. And when we really sit down and think about it rationally, it doesn't make any sense. Why? Because we have a faith that is founded on a man who wasn't just a man, was God who sacrificed his life. And yet we won't share the gospel with our neighbor. Why? Because it makes me uncomfortable. So we worship this comfort. We take our identity, we take our faith. I think another thing that a loving grandfather father would say is about our community. And this is the point where I could get fired. All right, so let's just, let's just run out there and risk it real quick. We are, one of the things that is gripping, that is stomping the life out of the American church is this thing that we call nationalism. Not not being proud of your country. That's good, and that's great, regardless of whichever country you're from. But this worshiping of a certain construct of a nation in which we believe that it is all built around what we want, our preference, and our views, and that we can't tolerate anybody with a different view than ours. We will cancel them, or we will delete them, or we call them losers, or, or we're, we're vicious to them online. That we have some sort of... Uh, construct of the way in which we view our community. And I see this in, in the sayings that people say. Uh, things like when people will say, bold-faced, out loud, they'll say something to another person like, go back to where you're from. Okay, that sort of evil mentality is not the sort of thing that a Christian would ever say. It's also not the sort of thing that a person who understands history and how this country was even formed would ever say doesn't make any sense historically ain't none of us from here all right so don't be telling people to go back from where they come especially when you're just doing that based on the way they look or the way they sound go back to where you're from and they're like i'm from boston you know and so don't say that sort of stuff i also hear it when i hear people say silly things or ridiculous evil things like the ten commandments has no place in our judicial system well that's just ridiculous it doesn't make any sense of course it has a place in our judicial system. Our judicial system is founded on Judeo-Christian values. And so that makes sense. Both of these statements, go back to where you're from, and, and the Ten Commandments have no place in our modern society, are both just ignorant statements that are rooted in this idea that I'm going to build the community in the best way that reflects value back to me. So we take things like our identity and we take our faith and we take our community and we build them up in such a way that we are constantly defending ourselves, trying to bring myself more value. And if I've got to take it away from somebody else that doesn't look or sound or, or behave or think the same way that I do, then I will take the value from them and I will ascribe it to me because I want to be valued. And if I've got to rob Christ of his glory, then I will rip the crown off of his head and put it on my own head so that this church and my small group and my life and my faith and even what I read in the Bible will all be about me and the way that I live. 
and then forget the way that God created me with my values and my, my system, with, the, with the, the talents and the gifts and the shape and the view that God made me. I don't like it. I don't want it. And so I'm going to break myself down and then put some sort of image out on social media that will reflect value back to me. That's what we do. And I think that a loving grandfather would try to, try to encourage us. Don't find your meaning or your value in those things. Instead, find your value in the identity of Christ, in the image of God in everybody. Find value in sacrificing because we were first loved, so we love. Find value in not in a temporal kingdom that as great as this nation is will not last, but find it in the kingdom of Christ, which reigns forever. I think that that's what a loving grandfather would say today if you were writing these things down. So a man with unbelievable experience exploring and examining all that life has to offer sort of forces you to consider the value of it. He makes you think about this question and answer this question. What is the point? What is the point of what I'm doing? He comes to the same conclusion over and over again. Look at verse 14. He says, I have seen all the things that are done under the sun and have found everything to be futile and the pursuits of the wind. These three phrases he repeats over and over again. Uh, the first one that I want to focus in on is futile. It's said over 30 times in this short book. Uh, futile. Yours might say meaningless or it might say, say vanity. The word is hebel. Hebel is another Hebrew word. Koheleth and hebel. Hebel means literally smoke. That's what it means. And so he says that all of life, everything under the sun is smoke. But that doesn't make any English sense to us. I would argue that the other words don't make much English sense to us. Like when we say vanity, if you think of vanity, you think of something that is superficial and only thinks about yourself, right? When I was a teenager, and I have pictures to prove this, but when I was a teenager and preteen, I had very thick hair, all right? Just very thick, big hair, right? It was just, it was big and thick. And, and, and one time I was brushing it in the morning, and my dad walked by, and he said, vanity of vanities, all is vanity, you know? And he thought, he, he made a dad Bible joke, and so he thought he was really clever on that, you know? But that's not a good word for what this is actually saying. We think of vanity, we think of superficial, or you might even think of a mirror, that you sit down in front of to put makeup on, a vanity, right? Neither of those make sense. Or meaningless doesn't really make a lot of sense because if you read the rest of Ecclesiastes and the rest of the Bible, life does have meaning. In fact, that's the opposite of what Solomon is trying to tell you. He's not saying that life doesn't have meaning. And so the best way to understand this is to think about smoke. Think about vapor. It's like this. Whenever you see smoke, if you were to see smoke right there in front of you and you were to reach out and try to grab it, you wouldn't get anything. You see it, it is there, but you can't really grasp it. That's one of the ideas behind Hebel, that it is, looks like it matters more than it matters. And there's a lot of things in life that way, work, relationships, those sort of things. The other thing is that when smoke happens, when you, when you have smoke or vapor, it eventually goes away. It does not last so when he says Hebel, he is saying something that appears to matter, but doesn't really matter as much as we try to act like it. Or it appears to last, but it doesn't really last all of that long. Hebel, the other thing that he says is the pursuit of the wind, which is exactly what it says. It's just this chasing after the wind. 
we were walking um, toward the beach once, and Amos was a little bit ahead of me, and uh, this plane was coming, and it was sort of low-flying. I, th- I guess it was going across the coast or something like that, but this low-flying plane um, started to come towards us, and I see Amos look at the plane, and I could see, and I could, I could, I could hear his little brain working, right? He, I could see what he was about to do. He sees the plane, and he gets down like this. And as soon as that plane comes right across, he takes off three or four steps. And then he stops and he comes back and goes, I was going to race it, but it's too fast. You know? And I was like, you didn't know that before, uh, you know, but that's the pursuit of the wind. You're not going to catch that plane. You're not going to catch the wind. The other thing that he says is under the sun. Over and over and over, you're going to hear that under the sun. And I really think that's the key. I think that that's what is unlocking this whole passage to you. He's talking about life we live on this planet under the sun. It really gets to the heart of the rant. At the core of the life lesson, you see, Grandpa is not really saying that nothing matters or that nothing lasts. He is saying that after exploring and examining everything, I have found that under the sun, nothing matters and nothing lasts. But above the sun, with God, it does. In fact, these things that seem to not matter or last are gifts from God to be enjoyed in what would otherwise be completely depressing existence, and that in the end, everything will be judged by God, whether you used it for good or for bad. So all of the things that he mentions in there, like wisdom and work and pleasure and family and food and drink, and the things he doesn't mention, like social media and religion and community and your nation and your pride, all of those are gifts. All of those are good gifts from God, so long as they are leveraged— for the good of others and the glory of God. Otherwise, it's just hebel. It just doesn't matter. This, in fact, is what the conclusion is going to be. This is chapter 12, verse 13, the end of the book. He says, when all has been heard, this is the, the, uh, the editor, right, talking about the words of the Koheleth. When all has been heard, and the conclusion of the matter is this, fear God, And keep his commands, because this is for all of humanity. If you go up to verse 11 of chapter 12, he refers to these words of the Kohelet as being cattle prods, as firmly planted nails, meaning that they are to drive you closer to God. Uh, Like I said earlier, Proverbs is like honey. Ecclesiastes is like vinegar. Proverbs is like a flower that draws you closer to the way you should live. Ecclesiastes is like a thorn that pushes you away from the way that you shouldn't live. And all of these things, don't don't act like this is the end. Don't act like this is the point, because it's not. He's saying life is not pointless. It is not meaningless, but life is not the point, and it is not the meaning in and of itself. That this life is given to you to live conscious of above the sun, of what matters long past this. So, in other words, apart from Jesus, your life is pointless and like a vapor that doesn't matter and certainly doesn't last. Your comfort, platform, opinion doesn't mean anything if your life is only lived for this life. So let these words, let Ecclesiastes drive you toward Jesus seeing that Jesus is the meaning of the reason you have breath and a heartbeat and a brain. 
I think the heart of the book is to call you to question the value you put on things, to readjust them according to what God has said about himself and creation and what he has done for you, to stop chasing after things that won't satisfy that eternity that is written on your hearts. That deeper desire that leans towards eternity will never be satisfied by temporal things. And to start living your life for the only thing that does matter, the glory of God and the good of others. When we were down in Florida this last week, we stayed in an Airbnb. Uh, if you don't know what that is, it's just uh, like a rental house. And uh, we stayed there for a couple of days. And it was, a, it was a nice little house. It's not the nicest house that I've ever lived in, but it was a nice one, right? Or, or stayed in. Uh, it, was, it was nice and it was clean. It's kind of small. Had a one-car garage that you couldn't park in because they had this uh, mini uh, ping-pong table in there. All right? So it wasn't even like a real ping-pong table. It was like a mini ping-pong table. And it was in there. Had a normal washer and dryer. The washer didn't really work all that well. Uh, we went in there. We, we had like clothes going in the washer. And like an hour and a half later, we walk in there, and it's still just water's going in and water's coming out. Nothing had been washed. It wasn't really working. But we figured that out. We figured out. It was fine. And uh, we, we were washing the clothes. And it's like a little three-bedroom, two-bath house. Those big tiles, you know, all throughout the house to keep the sand under control. Makes sense. It did have a pool, though, a little pool. Uh, it was a nice pool, and we liked it um, because we're just so Arkansan that we went to the beach to swim in the pool. And so um, that was nice. I liked that. Really small lot. Like with the pool, the small pool in the backyard, there was no backyard. All right? That was it. That was all there was to it. Normal landscaping. Few, sh- uh, few shrubs, little tiny porch. It was a cute little house. Somewhere between like 16, 1,700 square feet. Little cute little house. I liked it. I liked staying there. It was clean. It was nice. One of the things we like to do when we are on places, our vacation, or if we're driving around a place we've never been, is we look at the realtor app and say, so what are things going for around here? Y'all ever done that? Raise your hand if you ever looked up on the realtor app. Like away, not like in your neighborhood. That would be, that'd be weird. Like, what did they pay for that, you know? Um, you don't do that. But we look at things, and we looked at these things. And so we looked at the houses that were nearby that were for sale. Some of them weren't as nice, and they didn't have pools, right? It was small, all this kind of stuff. Weren't updated with, you know, new washer dryers and that sort of stuff. And guess how much, just based on that, guess how much this little house was valued at? $900,000. Yeah, I'm sure some of you spent $900,000, but I bet you have a nicer washer and dryer than that house, right? A little bit more elbow room. $900,000. We were driving around downtown uh, Naples near the pier there. And, and we saw some cool houses and stuff. And I was like, whoo, bet that one's like a million and a half. <laughs> Jackie looked it up. She goes, nope, that's $8 million. So somebody paid $8 million for their house. It's crazy. It's cool, I guess. I mean, like if you have an $8 million house, that's awesome. All right. I'm not, I'm not saying you're crazy. I bet it's a lot bigger than that one though. It was, just, it was just the value that we put on this. And you might say to me, yeah, Josh, but listen, it's near the beach. Well, it wasn't on the beach. It wasn't even on one of the Florida canals that they've got everywhere down there. And last time I checked, the beach is free. I don't know how it adds $700,000 to the price of a house, but it did. That's the way that it works. You know how much something is worth? However much somebody will pay for it. That's exactly how much something is worth. I think what Ecclesiastes does What Grandpa Solomon is doing, what I'm doing for you today is just asking you to hold up this thing that you have poured your entire life into and ask the question, is it worth that? Apart from God, 
Is this thing that I'm willing to give my entire life for worth it? Thank you for listening to the preaching and teaching ministry of Second Baptist. We hope that we will see you in person this next Sunday. To find more information about service times, location, and ministry offerings, visit mysecond.family. Thank you for listening.